before we turn to the passage we're going to look at today, I want to show very briefly where we are in the book of Ezekiel and where we're planning to go. Now the book divides into two unequal halves. Chapters 1 to 32 are the first half, and then chapters 33 to 48, the second. This morning we're going to finish looking at the first half, and then in the new year we'll plan to move into the second half, which is obviously a lot shorter. The turning point in the book is the fall of the city of Jerusalem. That's what divides the two halves. After Jerusalem's fall becomes an accomplished fact, the mood of the book changes. Now last week we left Nebuchadnezzar marching towards Jerusalem. That was in chapter 21. Chapters 22 to 24 describe the end of an era. They contain God's final words to Jerusalem. The message of those chapters is a message that we've heard plenty of times already in the book. In chapters 22 and 23, God confronts Israel with their sin and rebellion against him. In chapter 24, we learn that Nebuchadnezzar has finally arrived at the gates of Jerusalem. He's laying siege to the city, just as God promised he would in chapter 21. And God tells the exiles that he's about to take away the delight of their eyes. That's the city of Jerusalem and the temple within that city. Instead of looking to God for their security and satisfaction, the Israelites had been looking to Jerusalem. And now it's going to be taken away. Those are God's final words to Jerusalem. And the first half of the book closes with God's word to the nations around Israel. That's in chapters 25 to 32. And in those chapters, God gives a prophecy for each of the nations around Israel. First Ammon, then Moab, then Edom, then Philistia, then Tyre, then Sidon, and finally, down at the bottom, for Egypt. Now, as you would expect, most of those prophecies are very similar. They're a simple announcement that sin is going to be punished in that nation. But this morning, we're going to focus in on just one of those messages, God's message to Tyre. And we find that in chapters 26 to 28. In the church Bible, you'll find that on page 855. Chapters 26 through to 28. And the words on the screen behind me are not a mistake. At Christmas, we celebrate God becoming man. But our passage this morning is about man becoming God, at least in his own mind or her own mind. I'm using man here to refer to the human race. Chapters 26 to 28 present us with three pictures of Tyre. Each picture brings Tyre's particular problem into slightly sharper focus for us. 
And by the time we've looked at these three pictures, we may be able to see that Tyre's problem wasn't unique to Tyre. We find our first picture in chapter 26. We're introduced to the island city that wanted to rule. Have a look at chapter 26, verse 1. In the eleventh year, on the first day of the month, the word of the Lord came to me. Son of man, because Tyre has said of Jerusalem, Aha, the gate to the nations is broken, and its doors have swung open to me. Now that she lies in ruins, I will prosper. Therefore, this is what the sovereign Lord says. I am against you, O Tyre, and I will bring many nations against you, like the sea casting up its waves. They will destroy the walls of Tyre and pull down her towers. I will scrape away her rubble and make her a bare rock. Out in the sea, she will become a place to spread fishing nets. For I have spoken, declares the Sovereign Lord. She will become plunder for the nations, and her settlements on the mainland will be ravaged by the sword. Then they will know that I am the Lord. Here's a reminder for us of where Tyre is. Just north of Israel. Now that map has Tyre as a dot on the coastline. But actually the city was an island 600 yards off the coast. So it was a big rock in the sea. About a mile long and half a mile wide. A walled city that's surrounded by sea is pretty hard to attack. So Tyre was a seemingly secure place. It was apparently impregnable. But this city wasn't just content to sit and watch the world go by behind its walls. Tyre has been called the Hong Kong of the ancient world. Now Hong Kong is a tiny place. It's just a few square miles. But it's massive, or at least it has been massive in terms of business. It's like a gateway between Asia and the West. And like Hong Kong, Tyre was perfectly placed to be the crossroads of world trade. Goods coming in from the Mediterranean and going out to the Mediterranean came through Tyre. It was a highly prosperous city. We'll see that later on. But it was also a city filled with greed. Tyre wasn't content to be the hub of sea trade. She wanted to be the hub of overland trade as well. But Jerusalem was a barrier to her ambitions. Jerusalem was a rival hub. And when Tyre hears that Babylon has Jerusalem under siege, she's delighted. Look again at verse 2. Look what she says. Aha, the gate to the nations is broken, and its doors have swung open to me. Now that she lies in ruins, I will prosper. You may remember that Nebuchadnezzar marched against Israel because she rebelled against him. Well, Tyre had rebelled with Israel against Babylon. So she's being a bit naive to think she's going to escape Babylon's wrath. But her greed causes her to party when she gets the news about Jerusalem. 
She certainly wasn't much of an ally to Jerusalem. And God's response to Tyre's response is to promise judgment on the city. In verse 3, I am against you, O Tyre, and I will bring many nations against you, like the sea casting up its waves. They will destroy the walls of Tyre and pull down her towers. I will scrape away her rubble and make her a bare rock. Out in the sea she will become a place to spread fishing nets. Tyre is not going to be judged because she was prosperous. She's going to be judged for her greed. Greed that caused her to rejoice when others suffered. In the verses that follow, God explains who's going to bring the judgment. It's going to be Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon. But notice God's goal in all of this. It's in verse 6. Then they will know that I am the Lord. This greedy, arrogant city is going to be humbled. She's going to be humbled so that she will acknowledge who is truly Lord. And Tyre's fall is going to be a shock and a warning to others around her. Look down to verse 15. This is what the Sovereign Lord says to Tyre. Will not the coastlands tremble at the sound of your fall? When the wounded groan and the slaughter takes place in you, then all the princes of the coast will step down from their thrones and lay aside their robes and take off their embroidered garments. Clothed with terror, they will sit on the ground, trembling every moment, appalled at you. Then they will take up a lament concerning you and say to you, How you are destroyed, O city of renown, peopled by men of the sea. You were a power on the seas, you and your citizens. You put your terror on all who lived there. Now the coastlands tremble on the day of your fall. The islands and the sea are terrified at your collapse. When others hear about Tyre's fall, they will be clothed with terror, trembling. They will be appalled. Why? Well, it's not because they particularly loved Tyre. They will tremble because Tyre was a symbol of stability. She was the secure, successful city on a rock. Verse 17 calls her a power on the seas. But now she has fallen. She has become a bare rock, a place to spread fishing nets. If that can happen to Tyre then nobody is safe. That's why the others tremble at her fall. If even she had no guaranteed stability and security and success, then who does? The history of the world is littered with regimes that seem to be rock solid at the time, impregnable, safe as houses, but they fell. Every single one of them. And they fail so men and women would know who is truly Lord of this world. They fail so men and women would recognize their own vulnerability and tremble and turn to God. Of course, in the context of Ezekiel's ministry, all of this is still in the future. Jerusalem hasn't fallen yet. 
And Tyre's fall isn't going to come until after Jerusalem's, but it will come. Despite all of Tyre's present appearances of stability and security. Security should not be judged by appearances. It must be judged by where the nation or the person stands in relation to God. The only true stability and security comes from being reconciled to God and living under his rule. In chapter 27, we're given a second picture of Tyre. The prosperous ship who was proud of her beauty. Now we've seen that Tyre was a city. But here in chapter 27, she's pictured or imagined for us as a majestic ship on the sea. It's not a big stretch to picture an island surrounded by sea as a ship surrounded by sea. And it's quite an appropriate comparison. Because we've already seen that Tyre was not a shy, retiring city. She didn't hide behind her fortified walls. She traded with the whole world. She was like a ship carrying and collecting goods. When it came to trade, nowhere was out of Tyre's reach. And she prospered in her trade. Look at chapter 27, verse 1. The word of the Lord came to me, Son of man, take up a lament concerning Tyre. Say to Tyre, situated at the gateway to the sea, merchant of peoples on many coasts, this is what the sovereign Lord says. You say, O Tyre, I am perfect in beauty. Your domain was on the high seas. Your builders brought your beauty to perfection. They made all your timbers of pine trees from Senir. They took a cedar from Lebanon to make a mast for you. Of oaks from Bashan they made your oars. Of cypress wood from the coasts of Cyprus they made your deck, inlaid with ivory. Fine embroidered linen from Egypt was your seal and served as your banner. Your awnings were of blue and purple from the coasts of Elisha. Men of Sidon and Arvad were your oarsmen. Your skilled men, O Tyre, were aboard as your seamen. Veteran craftsmen of Gebal were on board, as shipwrights to caulk your seams. All the ships of the sea and their sailors came alongside to trade for your wares. Men of Persia, Lydia, and Put served as soldiers in your army. They hung their shields and helmets on your walls, bringing you splendor. Men of Arvad and Helech manned your walls on every side. Men of Gamad were in your towers. They hung their shields around your walls. They brought your beauty to perfection. Now some of these references might be very obscure to us. But even if we don't grasp all of the details here, the picture is still pretty clear to us. Verse 2 says, Tyre was the merchant of peoples on many coasts. The verses we read give a long list of the peoples and places she traded with. In fact, the list continues in verses 12 to 24, which we didn't read. Tyre traded with the world. And she traded in all kinds of raw materials and exotic goods. Silver and gold, ivory and ebony. Pearls, spices, perfumes, 
oils, wines, fabrics, plus animals and human slaves. You name it, Tyre traded in it. And she manufactured and sold her own products too. She became wealthy and prosperous. Verse 4 says her trade brought her beauty to perfection. That's repeated for us in verse 11. The world was in awe of her wealth and prosperity. You may have noticed God does not condemn her for being prosperous. God is the one who describes her beauty as perfection. There's no hint here that God was angry because she did well in her business. So then why do we read this down in verse 25? The ships of Tarshish serve as carriers for your wares. You are filled with heavy cargo in the heart of the sea. Your oarsmen take you out to the high seas, but the east wind will break you to pieces in the heart of the sea. Your wealth, merchandise and wares, your mariners, seamen and shipwrights, your merchants and all your soldiers, and everything else on board will sink into the heart of the sea on the day of your shipwreck. Verse 25 sounds like it's carrying on the description of Tyre's success and prosperity. But then without warning, it turns into an announcement of her shipwreck. The ship that was perfect in beauty is going to sink into the heart of the sea. Why? Well, the clue was given to us back in verse 3. You say, O Tyre, I am perfect in beauty. The Bible doesn't condemn prosperity or beauty or popularity. It's concerned with how we reflect on our prosperity or beauty or popularity. Today, we might read verse 3 and say that Tyre had a healthy self-esteem. But what she needed was esteem for God. She was wildly prosperous. But as she reflected on her prosperity, she had no place for the God who gave her prosperity. That's what caused her shipwreck. Tyre was the Titanic of the ancient world. When the Titanic was built, there had never been a ship like it. It represented the height of human engineering and luxury. And, they said, even God couldn't sink it. The problem with that Titanic wasn't its luxury. It wasn't its engineering ingenuity. The problem was the promoters of the Titanic had a high self-esteem and very little esteem for God. For the God who gave them the brains and resources to build such an amazing ship. And today their great achievement lies in the heart of the sea. Just like the city of ancient Tyre. But human pride didn't die with the city of Tyre. Nor did it sink with the Titanic. This world is full of esteem for itself. And very little esteem for God. We're given one more picture of Tyre. In chapter 28, verses 1 to 19, 
God addresses the blessed ruler who thought he was God. Follow with me as I read these verses from chapter 28, verse 1. The word of the Lord came to me, Son of man, say to the ruler of Tyre, this is what the sovereign Lord says. In the pride of your heart you say, I am a God. I sit on the throne of a God in the heart of the seas. But you are a man and not a God, though you think you are as wise as a God. Are you wiser than Daniel? Is no secret hidden from you? By your wisdom and understanding, you have gained wealth for yourself and amassed gold and silver in your treasuries. By your great skill in trading, you have increased your wealth. Because of your wealth, your heart has grown proud. Therefore, this is what the Sovereign Lord says. Because you think you are wise, as wise as a god, I am going to bring foreigners against you, the most ruthless of nations, They will draw their swords against your beauty and wisdom and pierce your shining splendor. They will bring you down to the pit and you will die a violent death in the heart of the seas. Will you then say, I am a God, in the presence of those who kill you? You will be but a man, not a God, in the hands of those who slay you. You will die the death of the uncircumcised at the hands of foreigners. I have spoken, declares the Sovereign Lord. The word of the Lord came to me, Son of man, take up a lament concerning the king of Tyre and say to him, this is what the Sovereign Lord says. You are the model of perfection, full of wisdom and perfect in beauty. You were in Eden, the garden of God. Every precious stone adorned you, ruby, topaz and emerald. Chrysolite, onyx, and jasper, sapphire, turquoise, and beryl. Your settings and mountings were made of gold. On the day you were created, they were prepared. You were anointed as a guardian cherub, for so I ordained you. You were on the holy mount of God. You walked among the fiery stones. You were blameless in your ways from the day you were created, till wickedness was found in you. Through your widespread trade, you were filled with violence and you sinned. So I drove you in disgrace from the mount of God. And I expelled you, O guardian cherub, from among the fiery stones. Your heart became pride on account of your beauty. And you corrupted your wisdom because of your splendor. So I threw you to the earth. I made a spectacle of you before kings. By your many sins and dishonest trade, you have desecrated your sanctuaries. So I have made a fire come out from you, and it consumed you. And I reduced you to ashes on the ground in the sight of all who are watching. All the nations who knew you are appalled at you. You have come to a horrible end and will be no more. In these verses, it's not the city as a whole that's being addressed, it's the king. But he may well be seen as representing the whole city. Each picture so far has given us a clearer insight into Tyre's problem. In chapter 26, we saw greed and delight in the downfall of others. In chapter 27, pride in her prosperity. And now we get to the heart of things. In verse 2, 
In the pride of your heart, you say, I am a God. I sit on the throne of a God in the heart of the seas. The king of Tyre imagines that the little rock he lives on has risen up to become a throne for a God. And he, the king, is sitting on the throne. He rules the world. But look what God says to him in verse 2. You're a man and not a God. Though you think you are as wise as a God, are you wiser than Daniel? Is no secret hidden from you? The NIV has a footnote wondering if this is really the biblical Daniel. But it almost certainly is. Daniel was another Israelite in exile at the same time as Ezekiel. And Daniel rose to become a wise man in the king's court in Babylon. God gave him great wisdom and insight. And obviously, even during his lifetime, Daniel has become wildly and widely famous. If you read the book of Daniel, you'll see that Daniel was always careful to give God credit for his great wisdom. Daniel acknowledged that it wasn't his own. It was a gift from God. But the king of Tyre is very different. God agrees that he has prospered through his wisdom and understanding and his great skill. But unlike Daniel, the king of Tyre believes he has himself to thank for those abilities. He has risen high. And he believes he has risen under his own steam. And surely he thinks only a God could be this wise and this skillful. Well, God says to him in verse 6, we'll put your belief to the test. Because you think you are wise, as wise as a God, I am going to bring foreigners against you, the most ruthless of nations. They will draw their swords against your beauty and wisdom and pierce your shining splendor. We might say, your bubble is going to burst, Tyre. Verse 9, will you then say, I am a God, in the presence of those who kill you? You will be but a man, not a God, in the hands of those who slay you. You will die the death of the uncircumcised at the hands of foreigners. The king of Tyre can stand in front of the invaders and he can claim all the divinity that he wants. It isn't going to protect him from the enemy's sword. Because the reality is he is only a man. Whatever glory and power he imagines himself to have. His human frailty will become obvious. The man who thought himself a god is going to die the most humiliating death. The death of the uncircumcised at the hands of foreigners. The Israelites were not the only ones who practiced circumcision at this time. It was pretty common in the ancient world. God didn't dream up the practice for the Israelites. God just gave it a special significance for the Israelites. Whatever circumcision meant when the other nations did it, for Israel it was a sign that they belonged to God. But even outside of Israel, to call someone uncircumcised was a pretty big insult. 
And here God says to Tyre, you who imagine yourself a god, you are going to die. Not just like a man, but like the lowest, most despised man. You can claim whatever you want about yourself. The day of of your death will show you're just a man. And that's true of every superstar, every dictator, every billionaire. Whatever they may claim to be in life, the day of their death shows them to be just a man, just a woman. In the verses that follow, God addresses the king of Tyre again. It's very clear that's who God is talking to. But in this final section, God highlights the king's sin by comparing him to another man, the first man. Verses 11 to 19 flip backwards and forwards between Adam in the Garden of Eden and the king of Tyre in his prosperous city. Look again at the middle of verse 12. You are the model of perfection. Full of wisdom and perfect in beauty. You were in Eden, the garden of God. Adam was created to be God's image bearer. Adam was to be a model of what it meant to serve and honor God with the gifts that God gave him. And that's what God expected the king of Tyre to do with the gifts God gave him. Adam was placed in Eden, the perfect position to serve and honor God. The king of Tyre was placed at the crossroads of the world, a place where wealth and resources were constantly flowing in and out. Another perfect place to serve and honor God. Genesis chapter 2 describes Adam's location as a land filled with gold, resin, and onyx. Adam had every resource he needed. And look again in verse 13 what God says to the king of Tyre. Every precious stone adorned you, ruby, topaz, and emerald, chrysolite, onyx, and jasper, sapphire, turquoise, and beryl. Your settings and mountings were made of gold. On the day you were created, they were prepared. Even as he reminds the king of Tyre about his ideal position, God also reminds him that he was created by God and for God, just like Adam. He was to be God's representative and deputy. I think that's the best way to understand verse 14. You were anointed as a guardian cherub, for so I ordained you. You were on the holy mount of God. You walked among the fiery stones. It's possible that the king of Tyre is being compared to an actual cherub in Eden. But they didn't arrive until after Adam had sinned. So I think God is saying that Adam was commissioned to be God's guardian cherub in Eden. The plural of cherub is cherubim. If you remember what we've seen of cherubim earlier in Ezekiel, it makes sense to describe Adam that way. 
You may remember that cherubim exist to serve God. We've seen them already carrying God's chariot throne. And elsewhere, Scripture tells us, they never cease to give give God praise. That was Adam's commission. To serve and praise God as he tended and cultivated God's garden. The holy mount of God seems to be another way of referring to the garden of God. And the fiery stones are a way of talking about God's holy presence. In Ezekiel 10, God's throne is filled with fiery coals. Genesis 3 tells us God walked in Eden. And Adam was given the freedom to walk there too. So walking among the fiery stones means that he walked with God in Eden. As God's deputy in God's place, Adam was given the run of the place. And the king of Tyre in his island paradise had a similar privilege and freedom. He was given the freedom to trade and to prosper and to do so for God's glory and praise. But just like Adam, the king of Tyre became proud. You remember the serpent's temptation to Adam and Eve. You will be like God. Reach out for it. You don't have to serve God. You can be God. They did reach out for what they wanted. They took the forbidden fruit and they lost everything. God has already promised that the king of Tyre will be driven from his island. And here God recalls how Adam was driven in disgrace from the mount of God. He and Eve were expelled from Eden and from God's presence, from among the fiery stones. Adam had stood on the heights of the mount of God, but he fell. The king of Tyre imagined that his island had risen up to be an all-powerful throne. But God says in verse 17, Your heart became proud on account of your beauty, and you corrupted your wisdom because of your splendor. So I threw you to the earth. I made a spectacle of you before kings. It happened to Adam, and it's going to happen to the king of Tyre. What's the point of this comparison with Adam? God is showing that the first sin, the sin that caused the fall of the first man and women, has been repeated over and over and over and over throughout history. In one sense, the title of this sermon is ridiculous. Man cannot become God but we keep trying all the same. Man longs to be God. He looks at God's blessing as if it were his own achievement. And he believes he is God, able to control life, death, and everything in between. William Ernest Henley wrote the poem Invictus. It was used quite recently in a film about the South African rugby team. Invictus means unconquered. 
And the final verse of that poem says, It matters not how straight the gate, how charged with punishments the scroll. I am the master of my fate. I am the captain of my soul. It's very stirring stuff, especially when you put it in a film about rugby. But at its heart, it's a celebration of man's attempt to become God. Men and women were created to be God's deputies, his servants on the earth. But we want more than that. We want to be God. We aspire to sit on the throne ourselves. We pride ourselves in being invictus, unconquered by God. It happened in Eden. It happened at Babel. Remember what they said at Babel. We will make a name for ourselves. It happened in Tyre. It's happened in a billion other humbler places. And the results are always, always the same. It always ends in a fall. I should mention in passing that some people have wondered if there might be some information here about Satan's past history in these verses. I have to say I doubt it. The only place where the Bible speaks clearly about a fall of Satan is in relation to Jesus' death on the cross. That's when Satan was thrown down. It's unwise for us to try and create a whole back history for Satan based on a passage like this. John Calvin said you can only do that by ignoring the context of the passage. And most commentators would agree with that. Because frankly, the Bible is not interested in giving us a biography of Satan. But the Bible is deeply interested in challenging us not to repeat the fall of Adam and Babel and Tyre and every other human who has aspired to be God. Now I know it's highly unlikely that any of you have ever sat back in your armchair raised your glass and said, I am a God. It's possible, especially if you'd had a few glasses before you raised your glass. But I think the application for us goes a lot deeper here. All of us have a God complex. And I think there are at least three ways we give evidence of our God complex. There are probably plenty more. But see if you can relate to any of these three. First of all, a desire for praise. The preacher preaches his sermon. He stands at the back and deep down in his sinful heart, he craves praise. Did people like it? Were people impressed? Now don't get me wrong, Giving encouragement to others is a good thing. But craving praise for ourselves is trying to steal what belongs to God. It's taking up the motto of Babel. Let us make a name for ourselves. 
Do you ever get depressed when your work seems to go unnoticed or unappreciated? When no one gives it a mention? Maybe you set something up at church or you did some job around the house. You helped someone, but the praise doesn't come. Or maybe it comes just a bit too faintly for your liking. When we feel that craving for praise, we need to ask ourselves, who gave me the strength to do what I did? Who gave me the mind to prepare what I prepared? Who gave me the skill to play what I played? Craving praise for ourselves is trying to steal what belongs to God. Maybe our God complex comes out in a very different way. Self-sufficiency. Why don't we pray more? Why does a church with 94 members have 25 or less at the prayer meeting? We could give lots of reasons for that. But surely the core reason is that prayer really is a sign of dependency. It's a sign that we can't manage on our own. But actually, we feel we're managing pretty well on our own. We don't have a sense of dependence on God. Life goes on. And we're not really sure what we need him for. Why do men and women attend church but never join church? And by join, I don't just mean put our names on a roll. I mean join in the life and fellowship of the church family. Again, maybe we could give lots of reasons. But surely the core reason is self-sufficiency. We're aloof. We really don't believe that we need other people. What could those people possibly teach me? I'm not weak. I can stand on my own two feet. I don't need to share my struggles and problems. I can cope. I can figure this out. I am the master of my fate. I am the captain of my soul. God is the only one who can stand alone in the universe. He's the only one who is sufficient in himself. As for us, the Bible says we're a body. And within that body, the eye cannot say to the hand, I don't need you. The head cannot say to the feet, I don't need you. Acting like we're self-sufficient is acting like we're God. And third, how about anger or disappointment with God? Isn't that evidence of our God complex? Maybe some of us here this morning are carrying around some anger at God. We might not call it that. Maybe it comes out as anger towards our family or the cat. But really, it's anger at God. Life has not turned out as we hoped and planned. People have not turned out as we assumed they would. God has disappointed us. 
When we feel that way, aren't we claiming that we are wiser than God? Aren't we claiming that our plans are better than his? And aren't we claiming then that we know and see more than he does? We can't see a reason why he's done things this way. So, we conclude, there can't be a reason. My disappointment with God betrays my pride. It says that deep down, I believe I'm more qualified for the job than he is. The desire to take God's place wasn't just a danger for the first man and woman. All of us fancy a seat on the throne. So what's the antidote for us? Well, after we've repented of our latest attempts to climb up on the throne, the way forward for us is to focus on the glory and majesty of the real God. We might start with a passage like Psalm 8. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory above the heavens. When I consider your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him, the son of man that you care for him? O Lord, our Lord, How majestic is your name in all the earth. Then we might turn to a passage like Romans 5. At just the right time, when we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous man. Though for a good man, someone might possibly dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. You and I can fight our God complex by filling our minds with passages like that. Then we can sing songs of praise that bring those truths together. Songs like, How Great Thou Art. And if you'll stand with me, we're going to close our service by singing, How Great Thou Art. (laughs) 